Hey everybody and welcome to iFreaks episode number 204. This week on our panel we have James Uber. Hello from Minneapolis. Guy Rombo. Hello from Brazil. I'm Andrew Madsen in Salt Lake City. And this week on our show we have a guest. Uh, his name is Jeff Johnson. Jeff, would you like to introduce yourself? Uh, hi, I'm Jeff Johnson. Uh, I'm Madison, Wisconsin. Um, I've been a Mac developer for 11 years and an iOS developer for a shorter time. <laughs> uh, I was at Rogue Amoeba Software for eight years and now I'm an independent developer. Uh, I just uh, released an app for Mac and iOS called Underpass and in the Mac App Store and the iOS App Store. Cool. You and I have a little similar histories. It sounds like, sounds like I started about 2005, 2006 doing Mac development and also worked on audio software for a long time and don't anymore. <laughs> but I'm not from Minneapolis. I'm not from Wisconsin. I've never actually been to either place. I think most of our listeners think that Jeff and I are neighbors. We could like grab lunch. <laughs> you should you gotta wait for a very, very long lunch. It's only a four and a half hour drive. You gotta yes. wait for the snow to melt and then that'll happen in June sometime. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, Actually, uh, global warming's kind of uh, reduced the snow a bit. Yeah, we've we've actually had less we actually had a pretty good snowy winter this winter, but the last few years have not been so snowy. What snow? <laughs> have you ever even seen snow? <laughs> no, never. I'll ship some down to you. <laughs> no thanks. <laughs> so Jeff, I went to school. You, oh, go ahead. I went to school in Miami, and they decided for Christmas they'd ship down some like a box of snow, like a like a shipping container full of snow. We had a big snowball fight, which was a terrible idea because it all turned to ice. Oh, there yeah. were just many injuries. Well, was it a refri- It was like a refrigerated. It, it kind of was, but they just dumped it out in like a 75 degree day and just turned to mud. <laughs> but, but the great thing was like the Florida kids had never seen it, had no idea how to make a snowball. So they were just sitting ducks. <laughs> That's pretty funny. Are you trying to figure out how to stay current with Ruby and Rails? I'm putting on a two day online conference called Ruby Remote Conf. You can check it out at rubyremoteconf.com. Like I said, it's a two-day conference where you can come and listen to speakers and experts from all around the world talk to you about issues pertaining to Ruby and web development. We have an online Slack channel, a roundtable discussion on Zoom, and all of the talks are given over Google Hangouts, and all of the talks will be streamed to you live. Come check us out at rubyremoteconf.com. So Jeff, you have a you mentioned you have an app called Underpass that you've recently released for both Mac and iOS. Why, why don't you just tell us a little bit about what Underpass is? Okay, uh, Underpass uh, allows you to do encrypted chat and file transfer um, between two devices. So it could be between two Macs, two iPhones, or a Mac and an iPhone. Um, it's encrypted end to end, and uh, what what's special about it is it doesn't rely on any kind of third party 
you know, you don't log into a server like you do with uh, iMessage or, or, you know, Skype or any of that. Um, the two devices are uh, sort of self-contained. It's peer-to-peer. So each device can be a client or a server, and they just communicate directly to each other. And they can communicate um, either on a local network, you know, your Wi-Fi network, or over the Internet. Um, and the entire conversation is encrypted. Um, and you can do text, you can do images, or you can send files uh, of any file type. Um I personally like to use it um, to send data from my Mac to my own iPhone. So I'm like chatting with myself. Um, Like my iPhone is constantly asking me for my Apple ID password. (laughs) So I just, uh, you know, copy my Apple ID password from my Mac and and just uh, paste it into Underpass and send it over. And I can copy it, uh, you know, from Underpass on the iPhone and, and, you know, paste my uh, Apple ID password into the phone whenever it asks for it. So is that how you, that, is that why you, I mean, what, what gave you the idea to write this in the first place? Yeah, that was one of the main uh, motivations for it because I bought a new, I bought an iPhone 7 last year when they came out and I was trying to set it up um, because I, I was previously using uh, an Android phone for several years before that. Um and I decided to switch back to iPhone. And um, Apple's really changed the way that you sync things between Mac and iPhone. Um, it used to be that iTunes would take care of everything. Like you could sync your um, email accounts, you know, over iTunes. You know, you plug your uh, iPhone in. Um, by USB and, and sync your um, email accounts automatically from iTunes to your phone. So you didn't have to set anything up. You know, you didn't have to enter all these passwords in your um, iPhone. But Apple has really moved to um, iCloud is the preferred way of, of setting up your iOS devices and some of the functionality has been removed from iTunes. Um, but I'm not a big user of iCloud. And so I was really missing the features that have been removed from iTunes. So I wanted a better way to bring things over from the Mac um, to the iPhone. And that was one of the main motivations for writing the app. Um, and it sort of expanded from there because, um, if you want to be able to like copy text, like a password from one device to another, that's basically equivalent to a chat, you know? So why not, if if I have two devices communicating and sending text, you know, why not expand that to chat? And if you can do that over a local network, 
then why not do it over the internet too? Because, uh, you know, network communication is uh, the same over local network or over the internet. So the idea kind of expanded from there. Um, I, I do worry about whether the app is like too, too complicated. And I may have written something that's too powerful, like it does too many things and therefore it's not clear what the app is for. So it's, it's a little difficult to market it that way, <laughs> you know, as opposed to just making it like a pure app for transferring between your own devices um, and just marketing it that way versus marketing it as a chat app. I'm not, it's hard to sort of do both well just from a marketing perspective, even though functionally they, you know, each, each of those features, you know, works great. I actually have a question. Yeah. How do you deal with the issues with uh, firewalls when you want to chat over the internet? Right. Um, what Underpass does um, is actually open up automatically um, a port in the firewall. So there, there are a lot of uh, routers, you know, like your, your wireless router um, has protocols that allow you to uh, set up port mapping. So Underpass will do that automatically. You know, the, you choose a port uh, to use over the Internet And for any supported routers, you know, including, you know, Apple's um, Airport Extreme and Airport Express, Underpass will automatically uh, do port mapping for that. So you can, um, you know, use that port over the Internet and get through the firewall. So hopefully for, for most uh, customers, um, Underpass should just handle the port mapping automatically and it will just work. I want to. I just want to sort of get into some of the some of the stuff you had to solve to make this. Um, uh-huh. Because I think, excuse me, <clears throat> I think the average developer is a little intimidated by some of the sort of lower level net- networking stuff, and also uh, one of the things Underpass does is is encrypt all of the communications between uh, two people or between two devices, and encryption is also something that a, a lot of people are, I think, rightfully kind of wary of. It's easy to get wrong, and when you get it wrong, uh, it, it's, it, that's a really bad thing. So um, I, I'm, I'm kind of curious, from your perspective, what the hardest parts of, of getting this all right were. Um, yeah, as, as far as networking is concerned, um, I had a lot of experience with that, Um, because when I was a rogue amoeba, I was the lead developer of airfoil, um, which is an app that, uh, allows you to send audio to, uh, speakers on your, on your network, uh, you know, airport express or other Macs or iOS devices. Um, so I had a lot of experience already with, uh, networking, um, and, um, I use the, um, core foundation API, um, CF stream, um, because, 
I'm not using it's it's a custom protocol that I'm using that I wrote myself for underpass. I'm not using HTTP or HTTPS or, or any standard protocol. So you can't really use the higher level API, you know, NSURL and um, NSURL connection or, or any of those because those are too high level for that. Those are dealing with the existing standard protocols. So I had to go down to a little lower level um, to the CF stream API. Um, but I already had a lot of experience with that. So that wasn't, um, too difficult for me. Um, as far as encryption is concerned, um, I didn't write, um, my own encryption. I used, um, built in API, um, uh, Common Crypto is the one I ultimately chose because that one, the same functions are available on both Mac and iOS. So I was able to write uh, just one shared code base that both uh, Mac and iOS apps could use. So, I, yeah, I would definitely avoid trying to write your own crypto, and I, I did not try to do that myself. Um so I, I, I think in general, writing your own crypto implementation is one of the worst ideas you could do. Yeah, and, you would, and you'd have problems with export compliance, too. Um, if you tried to do that, um, you would have to go some, through some sort of application process for that. Whereas if you just use the crypto that's built in to the operating system then you don't really have to do anything special. You just put a, a key in your uh, info plist file and that's pretty much all you have to do because you're not writing your own crypto. So the, the, the most difficult part was really designing the network protocol. The actual networking is pretty standard and there, you know, a lot of apps do that. And the crypto, I, I leave that all to Apple. <laughs> um, but design, to design the protocol that um, Underpass uses to communicate, um, that was the most difficult part. Um, so what caused you to design your own protocol versus grabbing something off the shelf? Well, um, it's the, the, the peer to peer model, um, that requires, um, me to write something custom because I, the way that I do encryption that is, uh, with a password. Um, so it's just a shared password. So if you have two people who are chatting, you agree to a password beforehand and that's what you use to encrypt and decrypt. Or if you're just uh, sending between your own two devices, then you just have your, you just choose a password and you use it on both devices. Um, whereas a lot of the, um, yeah, the, encrypted chat that you use that are like multi-party chat and go through a server 
you're using asymmetric encryption um, where you have like a public key and a private key um, and you use that to um, verify <clears throat> how you're actually talking um, to the person who you're expecting to talk to. Um, so, so I'm doing something a little different from, from that. And that's why I need to write my own, uh, custom protocol. Um, but the, uh, I think it, it was crucial for the app to use password encryption because if you want really the ultimate level of privacy, um, you, you can't use, um, public and private keys because no one can memorize them. I mean, like you can't memorize uh, this long string of, of random bits. You know, if it's a, uh, you know, 256 bits or whatever, no one in the world can possibly memorize that, but anyone can memorize a password. So if you use asymmetric encryption with, uh, you know, public and private key, you have to store the key on your device. And that makes your device vulnerable if the encryption key is on there. Whereas if you use a password, you can memorize that and you store it in your head. <laughs> and then your device is not vulnerable. Um, I give the option to save the password in your keychain if you want to on your Mac or your iOS device, but you don't need to. You can just, uh, you know, type the password in when you want to chat. And then when you quit the app, then the password is gone and it's not stored on your device. And so you can use a device with underpass and you have an encrypted chat and then you quit the app and then it's, everything's gone. You know, there's no record of the chat anywhere. And so it's like the, the most privacy that you can, that you can have in your devices, even if your device is, you know, stolen or confiscated, no one can do anything because the password is just stored in your head and it's not stored um, on the device. I think the the whole I think the whole um, idea of having sort of encrypted chat app an encrypted chat app under your control has gotten a lot more popular in the last oh say five months uh-huh. and uh, I w- wonder if you if that was intentional you know if coming out with something like this was intentional on your part or if it just was coincidental. Mm-hmm. No, it was just coincidental. Um, I, I started. Um, at the, at the big, very beginning of September, I started a, a brand new Xcode project empty. <laughs> yeah, I started with that. Um, and, uh, I don't think at that time anyone really expected, uh, the outcome that, maybe you're alluding to. <laughs> so no, that, that wasn't really in my mind. Uh, I, more in my mind was really the, the, like, uh, iPhone, um, 
Mac transfer, you know, like between your own devices, that was really more of an inspiration than anything. So it was, yeah, it's just a sort of coincidence, any political circumstances surrounding it. But I'm happy if people, you know, find it useful and and are looking for something like that. I mean, I mean that would be a happy coincidence for me. Yeah, certainly not something to complain about. I know you um, you made some some implementation implementation choices when writing this app that I, I think are kind of interesting. Uh, one is that you did not use nibs or storyboards as far as I don't know about the iOS app, but I think on the Mac app it doesn't use nibs at all. Neither one does. Okay. And you also wrote it all in Objective-C, which uh, at this point is, I don't know if it's less common, but maybe less um, glamorous way to write your apps for a <laughs> brand new app. So I'd kind of like to talk to you about those choices. Um, the the one I'm curious about first is why did why are you not using nibs or storyboards? And it seems like you've actually gone out of your way to, to completely... Uh, get rid of them you're not even you don't even have one just to sort of start the app and get the main menu running from what i can tell right it's something that i've always wanted to do um for many years i I blogged about it for a number of years um but i never got to do it before because i was working on other people's apps and so now i finally got a chance writing on my writing my own app i could do whatever i wanted um, I'm, I'm not a big fan of nibs, uh, for, um, maintainability. I, I think nibs and, and storyboards are, are really great for, um, fast prototyping. You know, if you want to prototype an app and see how things will look, I mean, nibs are, are the best way to do that. Um, you can really get something together quickly. Um, but if you want to maintain a code base over the long term, I've had a lot of issues um, with nibs. And, and I'll just I'll just say nibs, but um, you know the format has changed a number of times over the years. Um, you know, they used to be um, sort of bundle-like structures, and then they became compiled nibs. So they were just like a single file, and then and they were zibs. You know, with I don't even know how you pronounce those xib, and then storyboards. But they're all um, in a XML, basically an XML format. Um, that's not documented and pretty much unreadable. I mean, you can try to look inside one and and figure things out, but it doesn't make a whole lot of sense when you're trying to look at them. And and that's to me, the main issue, um, like for version control, um, it's, it's impossible or extremely dangerous to merge any changes if you've got, uh, you know, changes on two different branches and you want to merge them, you can't really do that with nibs. And, um, if you try to, if you want to diff them, 
Um, you, it's hard to make any sense of the diffs. Um, you just sort of have to trust that <laughs> what you want to change is actually changed. Um, and I'm the type of developer who likes to, you know, go back in the past. Like if I'm trying to figure out some code, uh, I look at the version history of the code and see why certain changes have been made and what changes were made in order to understand the current code. And with nibs, it's really difficult um, to do that. Um, there's also an issue where nibs can become stale. Uh, this is something I really discovered at my last job uh, with Rogue Amoeba because they've been in business for over a decade and they have apps that are really old, um, you know, Audio Hijack, um, Airfoil. Those apps have been around for a long time and uh, the nibs, uh, they, they use nibs and the nibs have been around for a long time. Um, and what, what people don't necessarily realize, and I, I don't necessarily realize until I run into issues, is that um, the objects, uh, nibs are basically freeze-dried objects. I think they, <laughs> I've heard that term somewhere. Um, so say you create a nib on macOS 10.3. So, you know, many years ago, if you create a, an NS text view in a nib, what you get in the nib is an NS text view as of Mac OS 10.3. And if you use that nib, you know, five years, 10 years later, when you instantiate the nib and the objects inside the nib, you still get an NS text view as of 10.3, as of the time you created the object in the nib. And this can lead to um, unexpected behaviors, um, you know, undesirable um, behaviors and outcomes because, uh, you know, like NS text view has evolved over the years. So if you create a brand new NS text view in code now, it's going to be different from the NS text view you would have created in code back in macOS 10.3. And I've even run into really weird issues where um, I've tried to make a change in a nib and it just you know breaks something and I like have no idea um, how to fix it. So, I, I mean, I, I remember one time like a year ago where we just had to say, well, the, this nib is off limits. You know, you, you can't touch it. If you try to change anything in the nib, then it, it breaks and we don't know how to fix it. So just don't touch the nib. And that's not really a situation you want to you wanna be in. I mean, you either, uh, you know, rewrite the nib from scratch or you, or you don't touch it and you're afraid to touch it. So those are sort of situations I want to try to um, avoid. And this is uh, important uh, when you own your own app, you know, 
So if I want to maintain this app, you know, indefinitely, then those are the things you have to worry about. Whereas so, if you're just, so for reference, you, yeah. how old is 10.3? Oh, <laughs> I, I, I don't know. Came out in 2003. Uh, yeah. 14 years almost 14 years old so that that's vintage okay yeah yeah but no i haven't i haven't heard of nibs being stale in that way so it's good to know that that could be a possibility and well yeah it's a it's a it's a sort of a rare situation to encounter unless you have an old code base you know so you know maybe the majority of people are not working on code bases that are that old but they certainly exist out there i'm sure they exist inside apple and they exist in rogue amoeba and other companies that have um existed for that long um, definitely no i've worked with many old code bases like some had code from the 90s so <laughs> if that's a constraint you're dealing with uh, it's a good thing to know because apple's not that good about testing weird edge cases. They break stuff, especially with Xcode and their developer tools. So, mm -hmm. you know, if your code's going to be around for a while and you want it to be, it's something to consider. Do you feel like it's easier to work without storyboards on macOS as opposed to iOS? Um... Well, there's there's one trick with storyboards um, on iOS in that um, for the new um, iPad Pro um, split screen feature, um, Apple requires you to have a storyboard. As far as I know, you can't do that in code. You have to do it with a storyboard. Um, so that was, um, that, that was a sacrifice I had to make, um, in order to avoid using, um, a storyboard on iOS that I, I wasn't able to do, uh, split screen support. Um, so, so in that sense, it's easier to go completely nibless on, on Mac than it is on iOS. But um, I don't think in general it's any more difficult because originally there was no interface builder. Like when the first iOS SDK came out, everyone was doing um, all the UI and code because you had no choice. So was, uh, iOS SDK was originally built around make doing all the UI and code and they only added interface builder to it um, later on. Did you have to go to? Did you have to go to any real trouble on the Mac to? Uh, the the thing I, I guess the thing I've never done when writing a Mac app is is doing the the main menu um, mm -hmm. outside of a nib because you just get that free and it's there in main main menu nib and you don't do anything usually other than fill it up with stuff you want but uh kind of kind of what do you have to do to get that to work without a nib? Uh. I, I, um, I have some blog posts about that, um, that you can look up. This episode is sponsored by Rails Remote Conf. Rails Remote Conf is a two-day completely virtual conference. So if travel expenses are an issue or you just can't afford to be away from home for two days, then join us. The conference is focused on people who want to keep up with the latest in Rails, such as databases, front-end frameworks, 
or Rails 5.1 and all the new stuff that came out with that. We'll have speakers from all over the Rails community to help you stay current in the Slack room so that you can connect with speakers and attendees in real time. Plus, I'll be there since I'm the MC. It also includes a live roundtable video chat for attendees and speakers, plus we'll provide the talk recordings to you within days of the conference. Early bird tickets are available for $150 until May 27th, and the call for proposals is open until May 13th. So come join us at railsremoteconf.com. Kind of what do you have to do to get that to work without a nib? Uh, I, I, um, I have some blog posts about that, um, that you can look up and, and, um, actually see how it's done. It used to be, um, years ago, you, there, you couldn't do it. Um, you had to use a special private Apple API to do that. Um, so originally it wasn't a fully supported thing to do, but later on Apple added, um, API to set the main, um, application menu. So now you can do it on the Mac in a totally supported way. And in fact, you know, I mean, my app is in the Mac app store, so it's totally using supported API that are allowed in the app store. Um, it's not difficult it's, it's just a little, um, tedious, <laughs> you know, because you just have to go through and create, uh, I mean, you just, uh, you know, create NS menu and add all the NS menu items and, and, you know, with the menu titles and the actions, um, so it's not difficult, just a little tedious to do all the things manually yourself. And, and you can use a nib as sort of a model of, of what all the the titles of the menu items are and what the actions are. Um, and I'll, I'll, I'll um, look up the blog post and I'll give you a, a link for that. So you can actually see code that, that creates an entire uh, main menu out of, out of code. But it's, it essentially it's just, you know, create NS menu, add NS menu items, and there's nothing really special to it. Interesting. I knew you could create, I mean, you've been able to create an NS to create a menu and add menu items to it forever, but I didn't know you could, uh, I didn't know there. I guess I didn't know there was API for setting that as the main. main yeah, it's menu just it's app. it's something called like set set main menu or I, I offhand I, I forget what the the name of the method is, but it's something it's, like that. Uh, it's set apple menu. Well, that that's uh, hmm. I read yeah, it on your blog. <laughs> yeah. Well, that, I'm, I don't know if that's the the old special API or the new support API. I, I would have to check that again. So looking at the URL, the blog post is from 2007. So this is not new. <laughs> well, that no. part that part's not new. <laughs> um, but he, yeah, if you read the whole blog post, he actually mentions that that's private API. That's why you have to forward declare it in the category there. Yeah. So yeah, in the past you had to use private API, but but now there's there are totally supported methods to do it. That's cool. So another um, thing that we talked about is that you uh, you used Objective C for this app, and I've actually seen you tweet 
a fair amount about Swift and, and maybe why you didn't use Swift. Um, why did you choose to use Objective-C for an app you wrote in, in 2016 and 2017? Uh, there are several reasons. Um, people say that any Objective-C code you write now is legacy code, but I don't really believe that myself um, because the Objective-C language is not really changing. Um, and it's not like they're going to break the compiler. I mean, there, there's an Objective-C compiler and a C compiler and C++ compiler, and they're always going to work, and they're not going to remove it from Xcode. Um, yeah, I've never tried it myself, but I believe you could actually compile, um, like, Fortran code <laughs> in Xcode. So the, the compilers are there, and they're not going to be removed, and they're always going to work. So your Objective-C code is always going to compile, and the language is not changing. So it, it's not obsolete in that sense. Um, and in fact, you know, I, I haven't used Swift for work. I mean, I've, I've, I've played around with it, but I haven't used it for, for serious work. But I've, I've talked to a lot of people who have. And I, I've heard a lot of horror stories because the Swift language is changing very rapidly. And, you know, I've heard about people who wrote Swift apps. And then, um, you know, when Swift 3 came out, their apps don't even compile anymore. And they've had to spend um, weeks and weeks just fixing their apps for Swift 3 just to make them um, compile again. Um, so that's a, a lot of um, lost productivity there. Um, that that's a, I think that's a pretty interesting point. I actually opened up a project just today, about half an hour before we started recording, um, just just because I wanted to look at some code that I had written before and for something I'm working on now. And um, I it, it's mostly written in Objective C, and but there are you know, I don't know maybe 15 Swift files, and it, it has not been updated to Swift three. And I tried to update it with the converter and was left with lots and lots of issues that it didn't fix and started trying to go through and fix them. And I, I realized it's not even worth it. I don't really need the app to run. I just want to look at the code. But uh, my point is that just getting that back up and running after not touching it for a little while is a bit of a pain. Whereas I've got Objective-C that I wrote in 2006 that still builds fine. Right. Right. I mean, the way the Swift language is changing, you're more likely to be writing obsolete code now in Swift than you are writing code now in Objective-C. Um, That's definitely true. I think the worst change was probably the switch to Swift 3. There will mm -hmm. still be changes for Swift 4, even... Three one, but I think that was probably the worst one we're going to see. But you know, if you want your code to compile without issues in a year or two, Swift probably isn't your choice. Right. And um, yeah, I wanted this to be a, a low maintenance app. Um, 
I mean, if you have, I mean, if you have a big budget and you have a team of developers and you're constantly pushing out changes to your app, then it's maybe not such a big deal to be, to have changes, you know, from Swift 2 to Swift 3 and so forth. And you're constantly making changes in your app anyway. But for me, as a lone developer, you know, with a limited amount of time and a limited budget, I don't want to have to be constantly fixing things just because of the language changes. You know, I want to just have the app, you know, just work and have to only make minimal changes and and only if I want to, you know, if I want to add features or fix bugs, then I make changes. But otherwise the, the code will continue to work even years from now. So having a low maintenance project as as an independent loan developer was um, very important to me. And that was another consideration of why I chose Objective-C over Swift because of the limited budget and limited time that I have just as a lone independent developer. Talk about your work as an independent. Are you making your living on mostly apps? Are you doing consulting? Like what, what else are you working on? Well, I was working full-time on Underpass. I started at the beginning of September, and I shipped Underpass for Mac in mid-January. And then pretty much as soon as I was finished uh, with Underpass for Mac, I started on Underpass for iOS. And I just shipped Underpass for iOS two weeks ago. So I've been dedicating, you know, all my time to the app. And, and I mean, that, that's a pretty short amount of time, I believe, to produce, you know, a full Mac app and iOS app from scratch, you know, just working by myself, you know, because I, you know, I started with nothing at the beginning of September and, and you know, came out with a Mac app and an iOS app. And that's sort of another reason that just to go back to the Objective-C versus Swift issue, I I felt that Objective-C was the best language to produce an app um, really quickly because Underpass is a very low-budget app. You know, I I didn't spend much money um, on it. Um, I, I did almost everything myself except for I hired someone, a friend of mine, to do the app icon because I'm not a great, you know, I'm not an artist. Um, So I hired someone to do the app icon, but I I did everything else myself. And I feel that Objective-C is a really good language for producing apps really quickly. You know, the compiler doesn't really get in your way. Whereas with Swift, it's sort of like you're, um, it's, it's so strict that you can end up fighting it. You know, especially at the very beginning, you know, with, when you're starting with nothing and you're trying to build features from scratch, you know that things are broken. You know, you know that things are half finished, that there are bugs and you just want to get something working and and you know things are are not quite right, but you don't want the compiler to complain too much about that. 
I sort of want something like the uh, the compiler to be kind of like a, a volume knob. Like when, when you start out on a project, you turn the volume on the compiler like way down. And so you, it doesn't really, you can't hear it very much. And then as you get closer to the end of the project, when you're getting ready to ship and you want to make sure there are no bugs, and you sort of turn up the compiler knob to maximum to make sure you get all the all the warnings. But it doesn't really seem like there's a, a language like that. I mean, Objective-C is sort of the compiler volume down low and Swift is sort of the compiler volume up on, on maximum. And, and it would be nice to be able to sort of adjust that as you're as you're working on a project that I don't really know that something like that exists. Yeah. And I was also looking at the, like the CS stream library that you, you built it on, which is very low, low level stuff. So mm-hmm. I think objective C would be a cleaner implementation. Uh, oh yeah. Low, yeah. Level code. Right. That was, that was another consideration, both um, if I'm using core foundation and also the the crypto libraries were uh, Apple's crypto libraries were also a C API, so it's a lot easier to use straight C API from Objective C because obviously Objective C is uh, just a superset of C, uh, whereas you have to do a lot more uh, wrapping of things in order to use C, C API from Swift. Yeah, the kind of low-level code with Swift is really hard. I actually have a library to work with the Chromecast system on mm-hmm. macOS, and the protocol stuff is all written in Objective-C. I, do you think there's anything Apple could do to make Swift, some of these problems with Swift that you mentioned, less uh, less of a problem? Or do you think they've really made mistakes that, that make it... Um, so these problems are our problems. Well, I, I just feel like maybe they released it to the public too soon. Uh, I, I think in the past, Apple has done more um, what they call dog fooding of their own technology where they, if they come up with a new API or some sort of new technology, they use it in their own apps first, you know, and, they, and then they ship their apps and um, test it. And only after it's been shipped in an app and tested by Apple, then they release the technology to third-party developers. So they've already, you know, dog-fooded the, the technology. So they already know you don't really, you can't make a technology to be used by developers unless you really put it in an app and try to use it. So if, if you release a programming language to the public, but you haven't written any apps in the programming language, then it's going to be an unfinished programming language and you're going to have to make a lot of changes. So I sort of feel that Apple should have written their own Swift apps themselves internally first and sort of worked out the issues and problems with Swift first before they released Swift to the public. So it's kind of like we're we're the... Were the testers, the third-party developers, are the testers 
of the language and we have to tell Apple what it needs rather than Apple figuring out themselves what the language needs, fixing it up internally, and then releasing it to developers only when it's something that's really solid and usable. Yeah, definitely. If you're hoping to just have Swift work, you've had a bad time with the past um, <laughs> couple of years. I mean, I've been working with Swift since the early days and it's sort of very painful, but you know, I, I do appreciate the approach that Apple put it out there and let us try it. Like no one was, no one was forced to, and there definitely are rough edges and integrating with like the old core foundation type libraries, C-based libraries is one. And I think it's one that'll be improved either by just better mapping into language, Swift language or rewriting the libraries. But I've, I've always appreciated that they've thrown it out there and we've got to try it and they're you know, taking input from the community, which is making the language better. If they had sat on it and built some app on it and no one ever saw it, I don't think Swift would be as far along or probably as good as it is right now. I think, yeah, I think there's some tension here, right? Because if Apple had done what Jeff was talking about, I think it would have started out the gate probably better than it did, but I'm not sure it would have uh, improved or gotten to the point that as many people liked it as like it now. On the other hand, um, doing what they did do and releasing it kind of early and then iterating a ton and making lots of breaking changes and uh, you know, Swift 3 looks very different from Swift 1 means that people who invested in earlier hit with this painful, these painful transitions. So I, I think really the important thing is to choose what works for the, for the development you're doing. Are you willing to put up with the painful transitions and um, some of the baggage that's required to use Swift? And if not, then keep using Objective-C. And I don't think there's anything wrong with it. Objective-C is not going to go away soon. It, it can't go away soon because Apple is still writing tons of Objective-C. You know, as we speak, there are developers at Apple writing brand new Objective-C. And so they've got a while <laughs> before they can get rid of it, right? You have some insider information about that? I have no insider information uh, except that I, um, well, yeah, I guess I do. I know quite a few. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I know quite a few people at Apple, and, and they are definitely still writing Objective-C. And I, I think the consensus is that they will be doing that until um, the, at least until the Swift ABI stability thing is resolved because they can't really ship they can't really ship frameworks in Swift until those they can guarantee ABI stability for those frameworks. I also know that I talked to an Apple recruiter lately, and they were very uh, they stressed very much that they want people who know how to write Objective C. Good, that's uh, I, I like to hear that. <laughs> uh, James, you're I know you're in a little bit of a hurry, so why don't we uh, have you go first? Are you trying to figure out how to stay current with Ruby and Rails? I'm putting on a two-day online conference called Ruby Remote Conf. You can check it out at rubyremoteconf.com. Like I said, it's a two-day conference where you can come and listen to speakers and experts from all around the world talk to you about issues pertaining to Ruby and web development. We have an online Slack channel, a roundtable discussion on Zoom, and all of the talks are given over Google Hangouts, and all of the talks will be streamed to you live. Come check us out at rubyremoteconf.com. So why don't we uh, have you go first? Okay. Um, so I've got one pick. And Andrew, I know you're a Neil Young fan. And I like a little Neil Young. But there's been one album that I just never went near. Uh, if you saw it on his, like, any documentary, it's this weird album with him playing in a weird voice. It's in the early 80s. 
But since I got Spotify, I thought I'd check it out. Uh, it's the Trans album, and it's kind of like a cross between Neil Young, Kraftwerk, and the Miami Vice soundtrack. But I like it. I like the album. It's, it's good stuff, and he's got the weird voice vocoding thing going on. But uh, it's definitely uh, worth it. It's good coding music. Works well in the background. So a lot of young fans don't go anywhere near this album, and I checked it out, and, you know, not too bad. So check out Neil Young, uh, the trans album from like 82, 83, something like that. Plus one. I think that's probably my favorite Neil Young album cover. And I also think the vocoder is weird, but if you look up the lyrics, since you can't understand them, actually some of the songwriting on that album is pretty is pretty good. There we go. All right, Guy, do you have some picks for us? I have two picks. The first one is a device. I don't know if you heard of it. It's called an Apple Watch. And I recently bought myself one and I thought I would hate it, but it's actually really cool. And to go with your brand new Apple Watch, I recommend the book Hacking with WatchOS. It's from the same guy who wrote Hacking with Swift and teaches you basic watchOS programming. I'm going through it right now, and it's quite fun. Cool, thanks. Jeff, do you have a pick for us? Yes, I just finished reading a book uh, called Manifold Time uh, by Stephen Baxter. Um, and I thought it was really interesting. He's a writer who knows a lot of physics, and he sort of tried to take like cutting edge physics ideas and expand on them. This is a science fiction novel. And he tried to extrapolate, you know, like what the the universe would be like in the in the far future based on what we know of, of physics. And and there's some really interesting ideas in there. The, the character development uh, uh, wasn't the greatest, but really the, the, the ideas in the novel are, are really fascinating, and I, I thought it was an interesting read. Cool, thanks. That sounds like a book that would be up my alley. I should check it out. Well, I'm gonna, I've got two picks. I'm going to play off of um, James' pick. You can, if you get me talking about Neil Young, I'll probably never stop, so I'll try to keep it <laughs> short. But around next, next week is the Neil Young episode. Yeah. yeah, right. <laughs> About 10 years after the album um, Jane picked, Neil Young did an MTV Unplugged episode, and the recording of it was released as an album. It's called Neil Young Unplugged. And he, he actually sings, I think, just one song from Trans, uh, Acoustic Unplugged, Transformer Man, which is probably my favorite song on the album. So that's another good one to check out. Uh, and then my second pick is a YouTube channel that I found recently. It's a guy in England. He goes by Tech Moan. Well, that's the name of his channel anyway. Which sounds like it's him moaning about tech, but he's actually not. He actually doesn't <laughs> do that. Uh, he has he has a bunch of different videos about all kinds of tech, but he has a whole section of retro tech, and particularly he goes through and talks about a whole bunch of different kinds of old recording media and re- and you know recording machines, which is something I have a particular interest in, uh, and I learned about stuff that I didn't already know. Like he has an episode about the Sony double Walkman, which is like a Walkman that can play two two tapes. And I'd never seen one of these before and he got one and fixed it and a bunch of other cool stuff. So go, go, if you like that kind of thing, go check out his channel. It's a lot of fun stuff to watch. Those are my picks. 
All right, guys. Thanks for coming on, Jeff. It was interesting to talk to you about Underpass. Well, thank you for having me. All right. Well, if there's nothing else, we'll talk to everyone later and see you all next week. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.